Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government for this event looking at how can government ensure it learns effectively from the past in making public finance decisions. Today's event marks the culmination of a long-running programme funded by the Nuffield Foundation examining the history of the UK's planning and control of public expenditure between 1993 and 2015. This project was carried out by a team at the Blavatnik School of Government uh, with led by Christopher Hood, who's on our panel today, but also his uh, co-authors there, I think some of whom are also here today, uh, Maya King, Barbara Piotrowska, uh, and also Ian McLean. Um, also contributing to the wider project was a team from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, which were led by Paul Johnson. Um, we at the IFG have been involved in this project from the start, helping to disseminate uh, the findings of that. So I'm really pleased that we can be here today to uh, mark the launch of the excellent book, The Way the Money Goes, available at all good bookshops if you haven't already got yourself a copy, uh, which looks in detail at this period of public spending management. And I'm really pleased we can be here today to reflect on what we've learned from that period through the 1990s, 2000s and early 2010s and what that means for policymakers today thinking about public spending management. We're very grateful to the Nuffield Foundation for supporting this event and for supporting obviously the wider uh, project itself, helping to use historical analysis to inform public policy today. Um, we're going to kick off uh, our event with some opening remarks from Mark Franks and the Nuffield Foundation. Uh, unfortunately, Mark has been struck down by uh, the evil COVID, so isn't able to be here with us today in person, but he should be above my head on the screen. So um, I'll hand over to Mark now to make a few opening remarks. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Gemma. I'm, I'm really sorry I couldn't be there today. Uh, but I, what I was going to do was just speak a little about uh, about Nuffield Foundation, why we funded this work, and the importance of uh, independence and impartiality. So the Nuffield Foundation has three domains of research interest, education, justice and welfare, and I'm the director of the welfare domain. Uh, prior to joining the foundation, I spent about 20 years working in the civil service. Uh, some of that was actually spent at the Treasury, where I was responsible for the Green Book, which, uh, which I was delighted to see gets a, gets a few pages of discussion in, in this book. Uh, but I was also an economist in a number of departments, often developing the economic case to uh, convince uh, the Treasury to support their priorities. So I've had some personal experience of the issues we'll be discussing today from both sides of the fence. In terms of my current role, the Nuffield Foundation supports rigorous research and analysis uh, with the aim of changing people's lives for the better. And I'll come back to that final point about changing people's lives at the very end of these brief remarks. Uh, but I wanted to say, as well as funding research, we do also, uh, we founded and host three institutes, the Nuffield Council of Bioethics, the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory, and the Ada Lovelace Institute. And uh, across all of these uh, these different activities, uh, uh, as an endowed charity, we don't have to raise funds and we have the freedom to be independent and non-partisan in all of our work. And I do think independence is vital to a piece of work like this. There's no question in my mind that this team, either, either the Oxford team or the IFS team, would allow their independence to be compromised, but nevertheless being able to demonstrate independence of funding is also important. And I think it's particularly important in the current climate uh, where the findings of this research are incredibly timely and therefore it's uh, 
just more important uh, that they need to be uh, they need to be listened to. And to illustrate that, uh, yesterday uh, before before the testing positive for COVID, I was at the uh, launch of the uh, of the Resolution Foundation Economy 2030 inquiry report, uh, which was also funded by the Nuffield Foundation. And anybody who was there or has read about it will know that that work provides a very sober review of the UK's economic situation, uh, low growth, low productivity, high inequality, high inflation and high national debt. But that work was also very focused on solutions. And the single most important factor it identified was investment. And that analysis, uh, by its nature, focused more on levels of public sector investment, uh, which are low in the UK relative to other countries and have been for many decades. But clearly how money is invested is also hugely important. Uh, and the key question of how do we invest in a way that maximises the returns for the economy and society, and no more so uh, than in a context when the public finances are already extremely squeezed. Uh, and this book reminds us uh, that history does repeat itself and much can be learned from uh, past attempts to answer very similar questions. And there is perhaps a tendency by economists to uh, overfocus on what needs to be done rather than how it's done. Uh, and this book is a useful corrective in that respect. So that's the uh, current context. But when we funded it, we also hoped that researchers and policymakers would still be finding this research valuable in 20, 30 or 40 years time. And I hope that future historians will look at this research, how it was funded and who did it, and be completely confident in its rigour, reliability and accuracy. And on one final point, uh, I started off by saying that the purpose of the research that we at the Foundation Fund was to change people's lives for the better. And a lot of our research addresses that need in a very direct way, focusing on some of the most vulnerable members of society and how they can be helped. However, uh, although it's less direct, uh, even incremental improvements in how we manage the public finances because of the sheer scale of the issues uh, can have huge impacts on people's lives and be, be that through uh, the tax or benefit system, the funding of public services or through promoting the growth of the economy. And it's more so when you consider how the effects will accumulate over years or decades. So we're very happy that this researcher fully uh, supports us in our mission to improve people's lives and we're proud to have funded it and uh, are looking forward to the uh, rest of today's discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. And I'm sorry again you couldn't be here with us today. For the rest of the event, we will be tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag, hashtag IFG public spending. So please do follow and tweet along um, if you are into that sort of thing. We will have time for question and answers at the end. So if you're watching online, please do start putting your questions into Slido using the panel that should be next to the screen that you're watching this event on. <coughs> on the panel today, I'm really pleased that we are joined by firstly, Christopher Hood, who, as I said, really spearheaded this programme of work, working with his colleagues at the Blavatnik School. Um, who will be able today to start by setting out some of the key findings from his work and set the scene for this discussion. The work that Christopher's team were able to do required close working with the Treasury as well to gain access to the sort of archival material that they drew on. So I'm also very pleased that we're joined by Conrad Smewing, who's the Director General of Public Spending at the Treasury now, um, and has also held multiple roles within public spending in the Treasury as well as elsewhere in government. So very pleased uh, that Conrad's here to talk, perhaps draw the links between this historical work and where things now are in government. 
We're also joined by Sir Charlie Bean, um, who is now Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics. Um, has obviously had a very long career in various uh, public sector organisations, but for the purposes of today's discussion, also served as the chair of the advisory group for this project, and so sort of seen it from the original inception of the project through to today, and can reflect on what expectations were then and what we now look back on. And finally, joined by my colleague, Dr. Catherine Haddon, who is our in-house uh, historian at the IFG um, and has wide experience using historical analysis to inform the sort of work that we do on effective government. So I'm very pleased that Kath can be here to reflect more broadly on how historical analysis ha can help to contribute to uh, government's operations. So Christopher, let me start with you. What were the key findings from this and what were the sort of challenges and how did you overcome those in doing this sort of piece of work? Well, <clears throat> I've got six questions down here <laughs> and uh, I'm going to give about a couple of minutes to each of them. And I'm just going to pick up two books that I want to show to you. So question number one is... Uh, how did this project uh, arise? Uh, was it an academic initiative? Second, um, why choose to, to put its main output into the form of a book? Third question, uh, why wasn't the book published in the form of an official history? If you want an authoritative account of past events, why not do it that way? Um, fourth question, why can't you just rely on the Treasury's archives for learning about past successes and failures and <laughs> cut out the middleman? <laughs> so, you know? uh, fifth question, why, why did the book appear two years behind schedule? Is this a typical case of academic dilatoriness or something else? And then third, coming to your to your question, what are the three top line conclusions from the, from the study in the book? So, why did the project arise? Uh, was it uh, academic initiation? There's a saying that if you appoint a committee of admirals, they'll recommend to you that you build more battleships. <laughs> if you appoint a committee of professors, they'll tell you that you need more research. But in this case, it wasn't really uh, like that. The original impetus for this study came from some senior treasury officials rather than from academics. Those treasury officials wanted to augment the uh, treasury's institutional memory, exactly what we're talking about uh, today. And they wanted a book to be written in a broadly non-partisan style. I think academic credibility was the word that went into the Nuffield's call for research, and they wanted a qualitative uh, account of developments in public expenditure control over the period from 1993 to 2015, a period when you had ups and downs in the economic cycle, right and left-wing governments, um, and other variations too. Um, how exactly it happened I don't know, Conrad may know, but I believe that George Osborne is said to have signed up 
to Treasury Corporation with this project in one of his last acts as Chancellor in 2016. So that's how the project initiated. Then, second question, why was its main output in the form of a book? Well, that's because it's what the Treasury officials who wanted the project uh, called for, that they hoped that such an account would be useful to their successors a decade or so on, as they had found uh, an earlier book, here it is, I've lugged it along uh, today to prove that it exists, by Colin Thane and Morris Wright. And this is a, a, a hefty volume, 553 pages, um, that took eight years to write. Beside that, our little book is a tiddler. <laughs> Then, find, then moving on, why wasn't the book published as a, an official history, a long established way of trying to pass on lessons learned in the past to future generations? There was a lot of that after World War I and World War II, writing about economic planning in the wars and that kind of thing. And indeed, um, my academic supervisor at the University of Glasgow, you'll note I've got that tie on today, um, was Bill McKenzie, who wrote the official history of the Special Operations Executive. This was the black ops uh, organization in uh, World War II, uh, working on, <coughs> on uh, sabotage, undercover operations, and the like, all highly sensitive stuff, of course. Um, and Mackenzie wrote this book in, 20, in, in 1947. It was published, guess when? 2002. Um, and, that, and even what has been published, you can see this is another hefty volume, it's 800 pages. Um, this is only two thirds of, of, the, of the original book. Um, and so I think that shows you some of the downsides of official histories as well as the upsides. And, and I think that, that there, are, there, there are good reasons for uh, choosing a, a, a different format in this, in this case. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what the Treasury's thought processes were about it, but certainly after World War II, there was a great deal of criticism from anti-waste uh, campaigners against the use of, of official histories on the grounds that what greater, uh, what greater waste of public money could there be than to commission prof professors to write books no one was going to read. Um, and the, the Treasury had quite a hard time at, at that point, a certain Captain Waterhouse um, uh, went on about that. And one of the advantages of the Treasury not funding the, the, the project and not having an official history might well have been something like that. And then, next question, uh, why not rely on uh, HM Treasury's archives for learning about su past successes and failures? <coughs> uh, well, my father, who died 20 years ago, 
was conscripted into the logistics corps in World War II in British Army, RASC as it was called then. These are the people that move stuff from A to B and people uh, to fit in with battle plans. And I remember my father talking to me about how they did the archives in the, in the, in, in the military in those days. What they had were large uh, standard size um, <coughs> wooden boxes. And any paper that came up in running a unit got thrown into the box. Um, and you knew that you could estimate roughly how, how many centimeters in the box uh, any, any week or month would, would take up with papers distributed like that. Um, and the only way that you could find anything was if you had some rough idea of when it had taken place, because then you could go down the requisite number of, of centimetres in the box and find the right box. And it was a bit like that famous story by Juan Luis Borges about the Library of Babel, a library that's got everything, but there's no catalogue. Um, and uh, that it would be certainly a great exaggeration to say that the Treasury archives are or like that. Um, but they do point to some of the challenges in, in archiving. And actually, there are worse ways of doing it than that way. But there is a question which would be nice to discuss as to how far have we moved on from those, primi those primitive days in uh, this age of searchable digital uh, collections and the like. And uh, what I think was <clears throat> So, some bits of Treasury put in quite a lot of effort into systematic archiving, others less so. Um, and I think we particularly found the GEP and Treasury Officer of Accounts uh, archiving more systematic than, than other parts. But we repeatedly came across issues of poor file migration, lots of empty folders, issues of, of um, <coughs> missing or un... Uh, readable document uh, attachments. So if you get the sort of classic civil service uh, communication, dear so-and-so, we spoke, see attachment, but the, the attachment's not there or it's not readable. Um, and then, of course, there, there's the issue of the documents that never made their way into the archives anyway, um, because to archive something, even in these wonderful days of... of a digital records means that you have to have a keystroke response. And that's where the problems start. Then, <clears throat> where have I got to? Next question, why did it take so long? Well, we designed the project as a, as a two-stage rocket. The first bit was to get on top of the numbers for what happened to public spending over the 22 years we were looking at. That was done by the people who know those numbers inside out, Paul Johnson, who was a co-investigator, and <coughs> uh, Rowena Crawford and Ben Zaranko. And they did a wonderful job of putting those numbers together. And we, we introduced those to a, a meeting like this in July 2018. So far, so good. Um, but the book took quite a lot longer, mainly because of COVID um, the, and, and its knock-on effects. Um, and we're certainly doing a lot better than Bill McKenzie did. Um, and then 
three concluding, you'll be glad to know, um, three top line conclusions. One, very briefly, there's a lot of inertia in this spending system. Um, there's a lot that didn't change, and we do spell some of that out. Um, Professor Richard Rose at the University of Strathclyde, who's worked on taxation policy in the 1970s and 80s, saw <coughs> inertia as a very strong feature of the tax system in the UK, partly for political reasons. <clears throat> and we found something, um, uh, quite a lot of areas in which we could say that not a whole lot changed. Um, and then second top line conclusion, if we think oh, not so much of individual organisations but of a fiscal constitution comprised of rules, conventions, practices of how to decide <coughs> things, like how you decide what the size of the budget should be or what have you, um, there were sets of rules and procedures that together formed um, a, a fiscal constitution, but many of the rules seemed to be quite flexible or bendable. And it reminded us of Alexis de Tocqueville's famous characterization of uh, Bourbon France before the revolution, um, in which he said, what was it, une pratique molle, une règle rigide rigid rules and lax enforcement. We, we didn't find it quite like that, but certainly we found the rules were, vari were variable. And then finally, one of the fascinating things of watching how spending developed over the 22 years that, that we looked at was that all sorts of interesting developments took place on the edge of what counted as spending or what counted as debt. And the amount of ingenuity that went into finding new ways of resourcing things that didn't quite fit into uh, what counted as debt or uh, spending uh, is, was certainly a, a, a feature of what we saw. And I believe there's an old treasury joke that goes, uh, there is no fiscal crisis that cannot be dealt with by swinging classification changes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those half-truths that's, that's, that's funny, but, but there is, there is, we did find a, a good deal of what you could call stealth, stealth spending as, as well as stealth taxes. That's it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Christopher. So, Conrad, I noticed in the green room earlier you had a very well-thumbed-looking copy of this book already. So, for you, as someone in the Treasury now, what's the benefit of working with this sort of academic work and what, what do you draw out of it? Uh, well, so, well, first of all, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. It's not often that someone writes the perfect book just for you, but um, uh, this, this, that's exactly what this is. I'm, a, you know, a kind of a, a, an ex-historian. This is a history book. It's public spending control over the last 20 years, which I seem to have spent most of my time doing. And it's also very practical and focused on how the thing actually works rather than um, uh, on the theory of it. And, you know, that makes it all the more <coughs> useful. 
Um, I've, it's also got the added excitement that uh, I'm a kind of bit part player in some of the uh, in some of the chapters. I recognise that being there for the 2005 near cash non cash switching scandal is not quite the Kennedy assassination. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a sort of you know nice nostalgic feel to it. Um, so, I mean, what are the benefits for, for the Treasury of this kind of work? I mean, the Treasury um, puts a lot of effort into exactly this kind of, uh, uh, this, this kind of thing, both academic histories and, um, you know, teaching, teaching our officials about the history of the Treasury and the history of economic policy, um, precisely because we see a great deal of value in it for like, what, what we do today. Um, and I suppose I'd pick out three, three different kinds of, uh, of thing that we get out of it. Um, the first one is the sort of classic lessons of history thing. It's, um, it's inevitable that um, policymakers will draw on historical analogies. Um, you know, in economic policy, we're always asking, you know, is this more like the 1930s or more like the 1970s? I'm sure we will ask, is this like the, like the pandemic in, in future? Um, uh, and that is, you know, a kind of useful way of framing how to think about things. But it is quite risky. Um, you can see uh, in the way that Foreign policymakers use historical analogies. You know, uh, the lessons of the summer of 1914 lead to Munich in 1939. The sort of spectre of Munich um, uh, lies over lots of the post-war um, interventions. Uh, and so the kind of key, if you're going to do that kind of thinking, is to really get in and understand what are the essential features of this analogy that you're thinking about, what's the same and what's different. And really understanding what happened in the kind of detailed way that this book does, I think, is really, uh, really crucial for that. Um, the, second, uh, the, the second real benefit is just kind of understanding what has survived. Uh, like, why do we have the institutions that we currently have, which is sort of key to dealing with um, the problem of Chesterton's fence. I don't know if anyone here knows about Chesterton's fence, but um, it's a sort of principle of public policy reform that for some reason we owe to a, a writer of detective fiction in the 30s, which is if you're kind of going for a walk and you see a fence and you've got no reason, you don't understand why it's there, it's a very bad idea to tear it down because you're liable once you've wandered on for a bit to get gored to death by a bull. Um, uh, so, you know, if you're, um, if you're dealing with something like public spending, which has um, a very great deal of fences, uh, which, you know, sometimes it's difficult to understand why they're there, <laughs> having a, a history like this to tell you, well, you know, this is why the administration costs regime is there or why we have this near cash versus non-cash distinction or whatever, um, that is incredibly valuable. Um, and then I think the third thing um, is that a bit of historical perspective uh, allows you to see the things which otherwise you're too close to them to see. Um, so sort of give, give an example, if you kind of pick up any treasury paper from the IMF crisis in the 1970s, you're likely to sort of read it and say, what the hell is domestic credit expansion? And why do they keep going on about it? Where are all the scorecards? Where are the policy costings? Where are the borrowing numbers? Um, and then you think about it for a bit and you realize that if you've got a treasury which has got control of both monetary and fiscal levers at the same time, it makes a lot more sense to focus on something which both of them are feeding into, i.e. domestic credit expansion. Um, and that helps you to see just what a big change the independence um, of the Bank of England is in the way that we think about macroeconomic policy totally changes all of the way that the treasury thinks about um, uh, policy issues because we've split off the monetary authority and We've given it to Charlie and he's sorting it out. Um, so uh, those are the sort of three, um, three key benefits that, that I think we get from it. And as I say, you know, the Treasury, I'm delighted to have this book. 
um, the, the work that we do with, uh, with the Strand Group on um, uh, UK, uh, the Treasury and UK economic policy, really, really valuable. And all of the kind of ad hoc events and seminars that, um, that we do, just like really valuable for all of our staff. Great. Thank you. I'll come back to several of those points um, in a second. But Kath, let me come to you first. From your experience, how good is government at learning from the past and what are the challenges and opportunities of doing that? Um, it struggles, but it struggles in a, a very human way. Um, and I, I mean, you know, a lot of us do. Um, and one of those issues is just institutional memory. Uh, we at the Institute talk a lot about uh, the sort of churn, the high turnover of ministers and of officials and the impact that that can have on then churn and turnover of policy making as well. Um, and institutional memory effectively comes from people who are allowed the time and effort to develop deep expertise, deep domain knowledge, and also an organisation that has a culture of learning and wants to sort of review what it did in the past, look back and question. But politics, by its very essence, is very forward-looking. Everything is happening rapidly. You're having to find new solutions. Time is of an essence, and there are reasons why turnover that I've talked about happens. So there is a bit of a sort of inherent clash there. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a desire to learn better. Uh, we talked to former ministers for our Ministers Reflect uh, series of exit interviews. Very good historical resource if anyone wants it. Um, and it is, it's really fascinating when you have a minister who has been in a job for a long period of time saying about their frustration of coming across the officials and they knew more about the past policies and the past efforts to, to solve an issue uh, that had been done previously. So there is something about could we do better of using that resource. It is you know, a resource that we spend money on, training people up, getting them to understand a policy, an issue, and then it, it, the risk is that it gets lost. There's some more fundamental practical issues, and, and Christopher's talked about it in terms of record management and, and how you sort of systemize the knowledge that you are developing. And we have, in the last uh, 20, 25 years, had a real struggle over that, as have you know, people worldwide with changing uh, digital structures of, of uh, retaining records, of the ways in which we communicate with each other, of file management and, and things getting lost and so forth. So it is a problem. And um, I always tell the joke of, it's not a joke, it's real, um, of every few years somebody from the cabinet office gets in touch with me because uh, they've been told that I'm the person to speak to about institutional memory. Um, and so I have to start the whole conversation again and it keeps cycling onwards. But it's, it's just a reminder. But this is an example of, um, you know, as Christopher said, of Whitehall actually pushing for wanting institutional memory. And I think one person who deserves credit for that um, I don't know if he was the instigator behind this. I think Sharon White was involved, but Nick McPherson, um, who um, actually both the Strand Group progress, enthusiasm for this, and also in the Treasury, a lot of the enthusiasm for uh, institutional memory, the, the, the sort of history um, groups and so forth that, that I've attended and others. And he says that it was really during the financial crash where you know, not only was he looking back at, at past financial crashes going back to the early 20th century and really benefiting from the history of giving him perspective and so forth, but he also found it incredibly valuable for the staff, many of whom had not been through a recession 
let alone a crash of that you know, extraordinary scale, for them to understand how things can happen differently. So actually, as Conrad just said, you know, seeing things that otherwise you're too close to see, it is that sort of long duration history is just as important as the, the, the sort of remembering bits and pieces. Um, it's a bit of a shame that we've lost official histories. I think it was 2011 that they got cancel, which is, is probably one of the reasons why, um, you know, certainly nobody pressed you for that. But um, I think there are other ways to do history. And sometimes those big tomes, those big books, they're almost too big for the information to be disseminated. So a very readable book. I have been reading it. Uh, it is, it, you know, it, it grabs you early on, um, is often the way to actually engage people and then also just getting out and talking to them and disseminating it and going and talking to people in the treasury and stuff like that so I hope that you know it's only the start of people coming back to the book coming back to the knowledge of the team um, and you know showing that sort of same fervor and interest in in learning from the past thanks very much Kath Charlie, so as I said at the start, you chaired the advisory group for this project. And as Christopher said, the project was originally conceived several years ago, and a lot happened in that time, most notably COVID. For you, how did the, the objectives of the book, how did it sort of evolve, and how does it now, how do you now see it relative to perhaps what you might have expected when it was first conceived? Well, well in some sense, the, the object of the, the project is, is timeless, because it is to... Uh, to record the lessons of history during the particular period that was looked at, which I guess encompasses three, uh, three administrations with different contexts. So uh, initially, um, the recovery from the post-ERM um, uh, exit recession, then obviously the new Labour years, and then we're into the financial crisis and austerity and so forth. Um, uh, and uh, that's a mix of particularly interesting uh, periods to, uh, to look at. Uh, the thing about history, I completely endorse Catherine's um, uh, comments on the importance of history. Uh, just reflecting on my time at the bank uh, with the financial crisis, going back mm. and looking uh, at uh, past banking and financial crises was extremely instructive. Uh, but you can't just take off the shelf what's happened in the, uh, the past, but there will be some lessons that you can uh, draw in studies like the Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, study of 800 years of financial crisis was you know, extremely uh, helpful as uh, providing us uh, a crutch to lean our thinking on. But you have to think also, how is the current context different? How is the world different? Uh, uh, in what ways might the appropriate responses be different now? Um, so I think the important thing um, uh, going forward, thinking, well, you know, how can we use the results of this study is, you know, it, it tells us a lot about how uh, civil servants and policymakers <coughs> were conducting fiscal policy uh, through the period, but we're entering another period which is going to be highly challenging uh, for uh, fiscal policy. Um, despite all the hoo-ha over about the last 50 years, the share of government spending in GDP had been roughly constant, wiggled around a bit, but Beneath the surface, big 
underlying shifts with uh, an increase in the share of uh, spending on health and social security uh, and on welfare, going up from about a quarter of that spending up to it's nearly a half now. And that was made room for by falling public investment, uh, big cuts in defense spending, uh, end of the Cold War, end of empire, all of that, uh, and falling debt interest. Uh, now, all three of those elements are now going the other way. And the forces that drove up health uh, spending and uh, welfare spending, which a lot of which is pensions, it's demography is one of the key things that's driving that aging. Uh, so looking forward, you have tremendous pressures for increased uh, public spending. Now, neither party is really confronting this. We saw the Chancellor uh, basically uh, at the, the autumn statement um, penciling in implausibly tight um, uh, spending for non-protected departments beyond the end of the current spending review. And uh, Labour sort of implicitly saying, you know, we'll go along with this sort of thing. But it, it, it's going to be a big issue uh, which will have to be dealt with uh, in one way or the other going forward. It could involve changing what the state does or accepting higher taxes or whatever. But anyway, there's a big debate out there. But part of that is also going to be um, how do we... Uh, control the various elements of public spending, manage them more efficiently, and in a context where uh, there are new issues that are going to be thrown up with things like artificial intelligence, uh, vast increase in the amount of data that can be used for managing public spending, uh, and, uh, and so forth. So uh, even, even if the, the object of uh, Chris's uh, project wasn't changed, the context, the external context, and potentially the lessons drawn uh, will have evolved. Yeah, great. I mean, on that point then, I wanted to dig a bit more into some of the points that you draw <laughs> out in your book, Christopher. And actually to Charlie's point about the need to get more from public spending and make sure that it is being done well, particularly in the, the context of growing pressures um, for that public spending. One of the points that you highlight in your book is the challenges that can arise from the asymmetry of information between the Treasury and spending departments, <coughs> that the spending departments know far more about what they're doing, but they also have an incentive, I think is your point, to protect their budgets and uh, to be a bit defensive of that. But you have an interesting vignette particularly about the frontline first review of uh, the Ministry of Defence in the early 1990s which you I think you point to as an example of a case where actually there's much closer joint working between the Treasury and the Ministry of Defence that identified genuine efficiency savings that could be made that resulted in quite a large budget cut there. I was just wondering if you could reflect on that a bit and whether you think that has sort of lessons for what might be needed in the, the next phase if we really are looking to reform how things are done. I, I don't, the honest answer would be that I don't know, but I included, or we included it in the book because we thought it was a rare case um, where um, spending controllers 
uh, dealing with a department that's very well known to be a deep, detailed department. You know, these guys are really serious. They have lo loads of expertise. And there's no, no other department in, in, in Whitehall that's like it. Um, <clears throat> and uh, getting inside such an organization is problematic. And I think, I, I don't know whether Conrad would agree with this, but what we, what we certainly gathered in, in our book uh, in, in preparing for the book was that relations between defense were very variable over the period and, and from the treasury. Um, and to, to hit the jackpot, you've really got to have, from the Treasury's point of view, you've really got to have um, good relations both at the official level and at the ministerial level. And what was, what was certainly notable about that frontline first study, not totally forgotten, of course, by uh, just about everyone to, to, today, um, <clears throat> is... Um, that, that, that you, you had precisely a meeting of minds that on, on both sides. It doesn't often happen. A decade later, it was, you know, it was all, all bets off. Um, so and I think that's one point that, that I, I would make about it. And the other thing, going back to what Kath Hatton was saying about um, looking for the, where the institutional memory is, um, it may not be in the place you first expect. It may not be in the so-called permanent officials who aren't always very permanent anyway. <laughs> I, I remember doing a study of the regulator Oftel in the 1990s, um, which had a massive st uh, staff turnover, 40%, something like that. Um, and the only people, and the organization tended to make mistakes, it had repeat mistakes it had made uh, quite a short time before. And the only people who could really remember anything or were in a position to do so was the consultants. And that was where the institutional memory is. But you just need to know where to look for it. Comrade, on, on this point, is this yeah. something you are thinking about in the Treasury? And do you have ways of? approaching that these days? Well, so I mean, it is a kind of perennial, um, the, the, the relationship between the Treasury and departments, as, um, as the book kind of well illustrates, can, can go up and down. Um, I think there is, um, uh, you know, there's a quote from one of my anonymous colleagues in there that, um, you know, part of, the, part of the role of the official Treasury is to keep relations strong with officials and departments if there happens to be a kind of, you know, sort of uh, a, political a political disagreement. And I think that is a, a very important thing that we, we definitely strive um, to do. I think the other thing that's sort of interesting in this, in this regard is I went sort of straight to the chapter on gaming and, um, <laughs> you know, classification and stuff, um, uh, which I think is really interesting because, um, you know, there is sort of one, uh, you know, one reaction from some of my, I guess, former colleagues of, you know, you've got to keep changing the rules to keep them on the toes. I think that's sort of deeply sort of cynical um, uh, response and the more grown-up response, which I think is the one that has won through, is to sort of um, uh, reduce, I think, in the, in the jargon, the relational distance between the Treasury and Department. So basically, mm -hmm. you know, make sure everyone understands where they're coming from, that they're on the same side, that, you know, no one is surprising anyone else. Um, and, you know, that, in my experience, has been the most effective way um, for, for the Treasury to operate. 
Um, and you know, some of the things that we've done since the, you know, the period covered in this book, like um, the way that the government finance function has been embedded into the treasury and into departments, have actually helped that quite a lot. Catherine, on this point about relationships mm. from your work, how important are those relationships at official and ministerial level? Is there anything from your sort of ministerial reflections that get it out of it, Yeah, I mean, the relationships are incredibly important. Um, at the moment, uh, you may or may not know, but there's uh, going to be a general election at some <laughs> point um, in the next year and a bit. Um, so some of the work that we do, we do work with ministers, we do work with the opposition. And a lot of that is about how to understand Whitehall, how do things work? And we write a lot of guides about it and we use Ministers Reflect to, to do that. And actually, some of what we're talking about today, it could be writ wide across all sorts of aspects of, of Whitehall. One of my favourite quotes from um, the book is from a former senior Treasury official talking about managing public money, saying it was uh, an apparent rule book with the emphasis on apparent. <laughs> um, and that could be true of the Constitution more generally um, and how things operate and, and some of the interdepartmental relationships that you know, come out of all of this because obviously money is one of the big issues across the whole of, of Whitehall. But it's true of all sorts of cross-government working and the, the sort of vested interests of different departments and understanding why, um, of course, every department's going to see it from their own perspective and going to want to protect their own area. And that's true of the money. It's true of sort of, uh, you know, collective responsibility and when policies clash and so forth. But actually, the gaming point is, is the most interesting because one of the, the hardest things to explain to people is the, the sort of insider, how things really work kind of um, accounts of, of Whitehall that people really... Um, you know, admire when somebody is a good player, to, to use another phrase. And um, it is something that people are both proud of and incredibly frustrated about because why can't we all just, you know, have some very clear sort of rules and systems and so forth. So it is hard to explain it to people when you're trying to both critique it and also tell them that, yeah, you probably want to learn this because it is going to carry on being that way. And one of the things that I like about this book is that it tries to step back from that and actually really analyze what is going on in all of that and, and take a more structured approach to understanding it. Because I do think we've got a bit of a problem where, uh, you know, people talk about it as if it's almost a joke and, and then criticize when we know the sort of bad behaviors that it can lead to, but also they kind of crave it and also want to be experts at it and are proud of themselves when they're really good at it and so forth. And that kind of dichotomy is one of the reasons why we struggle when we think about the sort of culture of Whitehall, the culture of government and, and how we can fix the bad things whilst, you know, not necessarily losing the things that are just classic human nature that you've just got to, got to work through. Charlie, I wanted to pick back up on the point that you were making in your opening remarks about the need to think about what is relevant and what isn't relevant from previous historical periods. What do you think we should take away from these the periods covered in this book and what do you think is just fundamentally different now and we should be cautious <coughs> of drawing too much from this? Uh, well, one enduring uh, feature which um, Chris uh, commented on in his remarks uh, was, well, actually, there were two, the, the, the sort of flexibility of the constitutions, he called it, uh, and the extent to which activity went on at the edge 
of um, uh, spending and debt. And I have to say, that really rings a bell with my time at the OBR. Um, and I suspect that is something which, you know, is a sort of going to be a permanent feature for the sort of reasons that Catherine referred to. Now, I, I have to say, I'm not against flexibility in the, con fle uh, the fiscal constitution, whatever you want to call it, fiscal rules and so forth, uh, because some flexibility is good. It's impossible to prescribe a rule which is appropriate for all circumstances. So you need to have some room for discretion. And then the question is how you design the constitution or how you build it. There may not be a conscious design thing in a way that gives you the flexibility when you need it, but also inhibits the malign part of gaming uh, the rules. Uh, now, I think it sort of Chris's project is very good at exposing the problem. Uh, what I think is really the, the task ahead is actually trying to identify uh, ways of improving it, uh, which to some extent you know, falls less to people like Chris who are analysing what's gone on mm. and more to people like Conrad who are on the, the inside and perm secretaries and uh, so forth. Um, yeah. On that point then, Conrad, to what extent do you think the Treasury has learnt these from what happened in this period? Well, so I guess I would point to... Um, uh, so I suppose the first thing I'd say is um, I think there is a kind of inevitable boundary problem that you, you end up in, in any kind of budgeting system. So, you know, to take, take the obvious example, there is a difference between giving someone money and lending them money. Yeah. You want to treat those two things yeah. differently. But there is also an intermediate case. You could give them an income contingent loan, which is a little bit between lending them money and giving them money. Um, uh, and, you know, so how do you treat that in your budgeting system where it tends to be the case that there is sort of one thing which is most constrained? Um, uh, I, I think the right answer to this, you know, is, uh, is, the, is the one which the Treasury has sought to do over this period and is picked up in the book, which is kind of set up some institutions to help uh, take it out of um, the direct control of, um, uh, you know, of departments and the, and the Treasury. So, you know, the independence of the ONS... Um, to go away and have a look at these income contingent loans, think about how we should score them in the national accounts. That is very important. The independence of the OBR uh, with a remit to think about fiscal risks and you know, how it should reflect these things in its forecast, I think that is also a very uh, powerful tool. So there's a kind of, you know, inevitably you're going to get into these kind of boundary things. Um, uh, you know, I think the right way to think about them you know, is, is exactly that, to have some independent people who will look at it and say, in the big scheme of things, should we treat this slightly differently? Do, on some of the, the more interdepartmental issues, there are a couple of the stories that Christopher spells out in the book, That uh, one of them being the 2005 cash to non-cash non to cash switch, and a similar fun. one by yeah. the <laughs> MOD in uh, 2002. Uh, have those sorts of... Would that happen these days? Have, have those... What's changed? Uh, so I think that is... Um, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I think that is like much less likely to happen these days. So, um, you know, for those not deeply familiar with the story, <laughs> um, there was an excellent reform, the introduction of, res of resource account budgeting, um, you know, which um, was applied with, you know, full kind of purity of principle to say, 
you know, we will count the depreciation of these assets. We will have effectively an operating cost control. Uh, we will charge capital charges for the assets that you hold. And if you can find some alternative ways of managing your assets, then, you know, great. You get to keep, you get to keep money and spend it on something else. Um, and unfortunately, I think that, that was a little bit too um, uh, naively applied. Uh, and um, it was too easy for departments who are facing a whole load of pressures, like they've all got their own incentives to, um, you know, come up with ways that they could save those non-cash charges and, and switch them. Um, we're not doing a kind of really big root and branch reform like that uh, now. Uh, and I think if we were to do, do so again, I think we might be a bit more cautious about the incentives at the edge because kind of the lessons of history are that people will follow the incentives of your spending framework. Right. Chris, I, mean, I think your point is that... I, I would that. only make the point, which is made in the book, that the way the Treasury fixed the problem was to make it impossible to, to, to switch between uh, non-cash and near-cash. That solved the Treasury's problem, at least short-term. Um, but it meant that a lot of the potentially beneficial effects of resource accounting was, was lost. So <clears throat> um, the, it's, it's kind of you cure the disease, but the patients died. It, 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 <laughs> it, it, it does mean that the, the ability of man, public managers to be creative, for example, in getting rid of surplus buildings or land or what have you, and putting them to more produ productive uses, that the, the incentives have really gone to do that because you can't bank the, 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 the results. So that, that seems to be the problem that the Treasury has with, on, on that one. Don't, I don't fully accept that because we do, <laughs> we do you know, uh, you know the, in the consolidated budgeting, budgeting guidance right now, if you sell an asset, you can keep the, um, you can keep the proceeds okay. and spend it on something mm -hmm. else. The switching into current spending is like, you know, less automatic, mm -hmm. but it would certainly be the case that if a department came along and said, we've got this great diff new way of running our assets, like the problem, the problem um, in the sort of vignette in the book um, of the original MOD thing was that they hadn't actually changed anything in the real world. They just mm. looked at all their airframes and said, mm, we, we reckon these can last a bit longer. So Real we'll cut the depression thing. So the, um, there's another section on the spirit of the, of the laws in there, which you, know, you rightly say is undefined, but um, you know, the spirit of the laws still apply. I want to come to questions from the audience now. So please do put up your hands if you have a question in the audience here. Yep, let's go take the two at the front here and then take three together. So. Uh, thank you and thank you for today. I think it's really important that what you're doing and I think it should be extended to other policy areas mm. like climate change. Um, I'm a currently freelance environmental economist, but 30 years ago I was economic advisor at the Treasury on transport from 92 to 94. And since I'm probably not in the Treasury's archives, uh, there's one bit of experience and, and a question largely for Conrad, but welcome for other insight, insights uh, on that experience. Uh, when I was there, I was tasked to devote half my time to immediate firefighting issues and half to long-term matters. On the latter, we had wisely Portillo commissioned the Fundamental Expenditure Review, and that prompted us to look hard at transport. Department of Transport came up with a big bid uh, for highways expenditures to cater for increasing road use, 
Uh, and at the time, uh, my undersecretary, Steve Robson, immediately thought that's not sustainable and tasked me and the, the policy lead to come up with an alternative solution. And I then worked with them to come up with the road pricing proposition. And on your question of collaboration, uh, as an economist, I was able to work with my economics colleagues in the department on developing the initiative. And as fellow members of the government economic service, we were able to transcend the policy issues mm -hmm. that might have separated us, shall we say. Um, so question for Conrad is, are you tasking your teams to devote substantive time to addressing long-term issues? And in relation to Catherine's issue, Catherine's question, forthcoming election, are you commissioning a fundamental review looking at alternative strategic options on both expenditure, taxes, charges, to overcome the major pressures that uh, Charlie's just highlighted for us? Thank um, you. Uh, Can I, I'll yeah, gather oh, three take questions three together and then we'll give you a bit more time. So historically it feels like the main department the Treasury's had to do battle with is the Ministry of Defence, but over time, because of the forces Charlie talked about, increasingly feels like that's now the Department of Health. And I wonder how that dynamic changes things. Thank you. And there was one on the aisle. Uh, Neil Carmichael, former MP as it happens, but now in interest in dentistry. When I was listening to this, um, I was reflecting on the fact that there's been quite a lot of chancellors of the Exchequer who've actually lasted a long time, despite the last year and despite, I think, uh, John Major's tenure and so on. Uh, and that contrasts to the turnover of ministers in other departments. So my first question is, does that really make a difference? How has the uh, longevity of chancellors actually influenced things as compared to normal ministers? But there's another question lurking around here, which is the Treasury, as Conrad has said, has changed, but not much. Um, other departments are constantly changing. If you look at their titles, you look at their responsibilities, their size, their scope. Um, and so I'm, asked, I'm wondering about the structure of the other departments and how that impacts this question. Because I think fundamentally, if you've constantly got change of the type that I've just outlined or talked about, then it's very difficult to establish that memory, that institutional memory, and also to link the policy uh, bits together. Mm. Thank you very much. Um, so we've got sort of four questions there. One about what the Treasury, how much of the Treasury's spending team time is now on longer term issues. One about whether DHSC has become the MOD of the past. Um, one question about how much it matters that you have long-standing chancellors and a lot of turnover in other ministers. Um, and also about the structure of other departments changing and affecting institutional memory. So, Conrad, let me come to you first, particularly on the long-term issues, but yeah. do feel free to pick up on the others if you want. Um, so, uh, well, uh, on the on short-term and long-term, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, you know, you do have to keep, you have to keep both the short-term and the long-term issues in view. Um, there's a kind of very interesting bit in the book on um, uh, the Hayward Fundamental Expenditure Review of the Treasury um, you know, which talks about how the spending side of the Treasury should be thinking about kind of causes of spending issues as well as, as, well as symptoms of, um, 
of spending and the kind of balance of where you put your um, your time uh, on that is like a, is a sort of difficult judgment you've got to make day to day. But definitely, um, uh, you know, long term long term issues are you know uh, central to what we um, to what we think about. I mean, on the kind of um, MOD versus the Department of Health uh, thing, I mean, I, I, I don't think it things have kind of fundamentally changed. I mean, the numbers are definitely now bigger on the health side, right? So, you know, it is the, um, it is by far the largest department, um, you know, and um, sort of swings and swings in what happens in the health system um, are now, you know, uh, proportionally much larger than they were in sort of uh, um, early points in this book. But the kind of fundamental trade-offs are still the same. You have, you know, um, the need to provide healthcare free at the point of use, and that is a very, you know, uh, important requirement of government. And you have um, defence of the realm, uh, and you know how you should sort of um, think about geopolitical risks. That that trade-off doesn't really go away, um, and and the ways of thinking about it, I don't think fundamentally change. I, mean, I think one of the points that Christopher draws out in the book about the MOD is both the complexity of it, which you've already talked about, but also that uh, senior members of the military can be very vocal in public, and that can be quite a good uh, bargaining tactic for them if you get those kind of senior people mouthing off in the press, shall we say, um, in support of more spending need. Do you get, are there similar challenges with the Department of Health and pressure for more spending there, that it's quite a publicly salient issue? What? I tend to say the Treasury doesn't comment on leaks. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think, I mean, um, uh, in any spending review or in any, um, you know, um, allocation process, um, you know, there, there is going to be um, like public debate about different priorities. Um, it comes out in different ways. Um, but, you know, that is a sort of valid, indeed, an important part of, of allowing the politicians to make the decisions they need to make. Christopher, from your work, did, did you draw out any differences between different departments? What were the sort of issues with different departments that stuck out for you? Uh, well, <coughs> certainly, <coughs> certainly the, the issue of how <coughs> spending was allocated within the department and the difference between <coughs> d departments like health, where most of the money is just passes through the 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 the, the de department to the, the, the health trusts. Um, and so then you've got the whole question of how it is that the health trusts manage their money. <coughs> Suppose they're supposed to break even um, <coughs> and, and av avoid deficits. Uh, that may have changed, but I don't think so. Um, uh, and then there's the question of what the reality of that is. And, and we certainly found in that vignette that you described uh, right at the start of the book on the, on, the, on, on the health crisis of 2005, health spending crisis of, of that year, um, was that the Treasury wasn't able to get in, inside um, the health trust to figure out uh, how big the, the, the deficit in the spending was going to be because the department didn't know either. Then um, that seems to me to be uh, the, the big challenge for the Treasury in, in, in health spending control. Um, 
I, I did want, would you, would you allow me yeah, to, to uh, just comment on Neil Carmichael's point as well about the, the, um, the length of tenure of chancellors and churning departments. Um, certainly, I, that there's no question that that causes um, problems for the Treasury on spending control. Um, because of the difficulty they then have in reworking out the baselines um, for the, the units that they're then going to be negotiating with. And we certainly found several cases, I'm sure this is all gone now, um, <laughs> where the Treasury simply had no idea of what the baselines were for, for, for some departments and didn't remember what the delegation limits were either. Um, and. Uh, and that was partly because it all kept changing. It wasn't only that the Treasury people were changing, but, but the structural departments was changing. So I think you're right. Um, you're, you're right about the importance of that. I'm not sure <coughs> uh, what to say about the, the length of tenure of, 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 of chancellors. Um, but it, it is certainly true that they, they, they varied in all kinds of ways over our period. We interviewed all of them. Um, and some, um, well, this is on the record, isn't it? Uh, Kenneth Clark had, had held many of the of the other uh, uh, other big jobs like like uh, Home Office, and and he'd been in the Health uh, Minister of Health as well. So he knew all which which hospitals had unused land and that kind of thing, um, and that, that he carried that knowledge with him then. Uh, to the treasury, um, and uh, so so I think that that that, that it is definitely the truth that the case that the the background of chancellors affects the way they do the job. No question about it. Charlie, do you want to pick up on any of these questions? Well, uh, the one thing I will pick up on is uh, the Ministry of Defence versus Department of Health and Social Security and where they're really sort of quite similar. Because surely there's an important difference in that most health spending is for now, because you know people are getting ill now and so forth. Mm. Whereas defence spending is um, precautionary, if you like, it's against the risk of war. Um, which means that there's much more scope to argue, you know, do you really need another battleship or you know, uh, so many more uh, typhoon fighters or whatever and where the threats are coming from because it's all a sort of contingent thing. Whereas with health, I assume it's really much harder to push back uh, when health professionals are saying, you know, if you don't give us the money, you know, uh, we're not going to have enough beds and people are going to be dying from X, Y and Z. So there is a sort of an important difference in... Um, in the nature of the spending, which I would have expected to feed back into the nature of the discussions between the Treasury and the departments. Um, on longevity, I mean, you know, let's face it, whatever the title First Secretary of State and Deputy Prime Minister and so forth, the Chancellor is the number two. Uh, it's the most powerful one. Chancellor's in, number one. <laughs> in some, in some, when you've got a weak prime minister, it's often number one. Um, and so there is, a, you know, there are reasons why you are going to have longevity there. Sometimes it's a political friend like George Osborne. Sometimes it's a bit of a rival like Gordon Brown, and that makes it harder to move somebody. But also, it really matters. Solidity there 
you know, we've seen what happened in the trust government when you start to have turmoil and the way in which uh, the markets react. So, um, you know, longevity and stability is obviously something that prime ministers prize in the appointment of their chancellors. So uh, it is more likely during periods of uh, political flux that you're going to see a higher turnover of chancellors. But I mean, I, I think the other thing to say about that is that what we only see when you've seen a chancellor there for a long period of time is the sort of distillation of almost a, an ethos behind that chancellor. You know, uh, Brown's approach to the Treasury, George Osborne's, Hal Lawson, even going back to sort of butskillism, um, uh, is that kind of distinct identity of a chancellor and their way of approaching whether it's the economy or the public finances, uh, by and large, it's the economy. Um, that really comes out of, of longevity. Um, just briefly on the um, uh, FE, FE, whatever, I can't remember what it's called. The first Fundamental expenditure. Thank you. Sorry, I had a mind brag. Um, my own view is that all departments should be doing some kind of strategic audit in the run-up to an election. Uh, it's just good practice anyway. It gives you that opportunity to be able to devote some resources to sort of taking stock of the department, thinking about what are we getting right, what are the sort of big long-term issues that actually we've not been able to deal with, and what's our advice if there is a change of government, what is our advice to a new government of things that they might want to think about, but also how can we make sure that we're giving them the best department we can, and if we know that we've got some underlying issues, how can we get ahead of them rather than a new government coming in and, and finding out problems? So I think all departments should be doing something along those lines. Right. Let's just squeeze in a couple of questions uh, from online before we finish. I'm afraid we may not have time for more. I'm trying to try get one more from the audience. Um, so one question from online from Anonymous. Um, says, why doesn't government evaluate the effectiveness of policies and programmes more to learn what is working and what is not? Perhaps particularly to Conrad to reflect on what, what government does do on that front. Um, second question also from an anonymous questioner asks, do you think there needs to be much more focus on upskilling civil servants in finance and how to challenge plans through a financial and non-financial lens? And perhaps I'll merge into that one another question, which asks, is economics more important than accounting with respect to the Treasury? Um, and I'll take a final question uh, on the aisle at the back there. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, uh, Ian McLean, one of the co-authors. Um, to the discussion we've been having about longevity of ministers, I think it's worth saying that since our book is about public expenditure control, uh, an equally important question is the longevity of chief secretaries, who would normally be the minister most concerned. And I think it's... Uh, probably not controversial to say that the most consequential chief secretaries uh, in the period covered by our book and before were the two with longest tenure, namely Joel Barnett before our period started, and uh, Danny Alexander during the entire uh, coalition government. Um, and then there's a sub-theme as to whether the chief secretary actually has a job to do, is familiar with the job, is allowed by the Chancellor to do anything, uh, matters about which we collected quite a lot of anecdotal evidence, but no generalisation is possible. Thank you very much. Um, so, shall I go first and be first? quicker, yeah. and then you can end with the, the author or something. Um, on evaluation, I was actually going to mention the evaluation task force, what works and so forth, in terms of government has got better at learning 
from what it has done previously, but there is still a lot more that can happen. And, um, you know, talking to ministers, it is often the last thing on their mind, partly because the churn that we've talked about, you're trying to think about what you can actually achieve in the, you know, 12, maybe 18 months, maybe two years that you're in office. So uh, looking at how somebody else's policies worked previously isn't necessarily at the top of your priorities. There's still an issue there, but there is, it is a lot better than it used to be. Um, upskilling the civil service, agree also upskilling uh, MPs. We haven't talked about it, but another theme in the book is the somewhat archaic approach of Parliament of how it scrutinises public expenditure. And I think there could be a lot more that we do for MPs and for ministers on uh, their uh, sort of ability to be able to, to scrutinise and uh, hold to account. Um, and longevity of chief secretaries is a great point, Ian. And it kind of feels like it is a place, uh, a, a role that has become one of those sort of you plonk somebody in there to give them a, a boost um, in the hope that then you'll give them some other sort of important job or, you know, you just put somebody in who's a safe pair of hands for a, a little bit until you can move the, the chess pieces around again. And I don't think it is fully prioritised as somewhere that you should have uh, somebody for a long enough period of time. But then at the moment we are in an era of very short spending review periods. So uh, hopefully at some point in the future we will get back to uh, longer time frames for thinking about public expenditure management. Uh, yes, I, if I can pick up on the first two elements and pull them together. Uh, so I'm all in favour of doing more uh, policy evaluation, both ex ante and ex post, but to do that you actually need the skills. So it sort of connects with uh, the second question and upskilling. And, and here I just want to give a plug, uh, because one of my responsibilities at LSE is to jointly run an executive master's in public policy that we have for UK civil servants. Uh, so these are mid-career uh, types of seven or eight years into their um, uh, careers. And that program is built around a core of economics, political science, um, uh, and government and so forth, and empirical methods, which are suitable for uh, policy evaluation uh, and the like, as well as options to do various other things. Um, so over time, we're helping to try and upskill the civil service. Excellent. Do your bit. Um, Conrad. Um, so I'll pick up a couple of those. So on evaluation, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think one of the really important things for the Treasury here is you need to have, like, to encourage more evaluation, you need a virtuous cycle where, you know, things that are working have a decent evaluation, you know, um, have a, like, uh, have kind of um, catch the eye of the Treasury, more likely to attract resources, things which are not working, you can reallocate the resources to try new things. Evaluation Task Force, which is something very passionate about, um, you know, has been a, 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 a real, a, a kind of real um, uh, positive thing here, and we, but we need, do need to do more. Um, and then on kind of finance, and I, I can't resist economics versus um, accounting um one of the nostalgic things about the book um is the sort of uh, it describes the um uh the sort of atmosphere in the treasury of the early 2000s of like quite a lot of distance between the accountants and the sort of policy officials uh, and i remember i was a sort of lowly policy official in in gp who i'm pleased to hear have good filing um, <laughs> histories written, written by the winners um uh and uh, you know I, I remember at the time and discovering the existence of this person called Hot Gas, 
the head of the government accounting service, um, which was sort of you know, separately in some ivory tower in the treasury. Um, hot gas is now my boss, the second permanent secretary. Um, I'm a qualified accountant. Half of the people who um, are the sort of civil service, senior civil service on the, on the treasury side are qualified or part qualified accountants. Like the, the kind of, I think we have worked really hard to break down the false division between economics and accounting. They're both incredibly important skills. Christopher, final word for you. I, 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 I totally agree with what Ian said. He's speaking for the team there. Um, it's just a um, <clears throat> very important point, obviously true. Um, as, as far as um, how do we train civil servants, um, there is quite a bit in the book about efforts to do just that, particularly on uh, project evaluation and evaluating business cases. But, but, but also going to departments as, w as well as the Treasury, a lot of, uh, of uh, effort going into that. And certainly in the book, we go through the various generations of green books, the Treasury's Guide to Evaluation, which is, uh, which is it, its principles are mandatory for some kinds of, uh, of things. So therefore, that there are, it's important and, and not just for academic curiosity, but for, for, for civil servants to do their job to get on top of these green book developments. And the green books changed enormously over our period, um, away from, important of course, but, 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 but not perhaps all important issues about how you, how, what discount rate you should use for, for evaluation. Important, yes. Uh, but but there, are, uh, there are other things that, that need to be factored in into evaluating uh, projects. And a lot, of, a, a lot of progress was made on that. Um, it, it's slow going and one of the very small number of Treasury people who does that job um, said to me, it's like hunting an elephant with a pea shooter. And so I think they need... <laughs> They may be needed a, a, big, a, few, a few more weapons if they're going to hunt this elephant. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry we haven't had time for all of the questions that were, but thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to our excellent panel for really interesting remarks. And thank you to the Nuffield Foundation for supporting this event and for supporting the programme of work. I do hope lots of you will go away and buy the book. Um, as we've already said, it is very digestible and has lots in there that will be very relevant to anyone thinking about these sort of issues today. Thank you very much.